0: This week's podcast brought to you by Ducks Unlimited, the leader in wetlands conservation going all the way back to 1937. Think about that. That's a lot of history of conserving waterfowl habitat and the uh, ducks and geese that we all are so passionate about. Uh, I'm a proud member and I also serve on the Dallas DU committee. Uh, I encourage you to get plugged in with your local Ducks Unlimited chapter uh, and and join this great group of folks who are passionate about duck hunting and waterfowl conservation. For more info, head over to ducks.org. Howdy everybody, this week's podcast also brought to you by Spartan Forge. Born in war, Spartan Forge was conceived while targeting terrorists, think about that, targeting bad guys during deployments in support of the global war on terror. We can also use this technology Because of its similarities to track mature bucks. Now it's time to get this analysis into your hands. It's military based intelligence, next generation mapping. I absolutely love it. And I love the people behind Spartan Forge. They're like me. Second Amendment till the day we die. No exceptions. America first. Spartan Forge. Check it out by downloading the app today. Mark,
1: asked me, what'll it be? I said, what you got? He said, well, let's see. We got Lone Star, PBR, Rolling Rock, Shiner Bock, Moose, Drulo, Doodles, and Bison, Ziegenbach, Keystone, Coors, Light, Coors, we got Red
0: Stripe. I'm Am still Amsterdam in the tall can Micko Miller I'd get us by
1: the pint blast up a bag of take his waller, cuz is going fast Oatmeal stop a lot of lining cugles
2: open up you wallet, do no a time maybe prove will
0: Good
1: night.
0: morning good morning good morning friends Cable Smith Welcoming everybody into episode 684 of SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms thanks so much for being here today It is a pleasure, a treat, an honor to be here talking, hunting, fishing, the great outdoors and all that implies. I do appreciate you dropping by and uh, we've got a great show lined up for you. I'll tell you all about it momentarily, but man, it is hot out there, friends. Some might try to blame it on global warming, but let me tell you, it's always been hot in Texas in the summer. July is here. Hope you had a great fourth. Uh, I was just looking at some pictures on the old uh, Stealth Cam app right there on the cell phone, and one of the pictures was 8.37 p.m. There's three does at the feeder, and the temperature was 102 degrees. At 8.30, we're not even in August yet. That's when it really gets hot. Um, But yeah, what have you been up to? I, I spent some time at the lease last week filling feeders. Repairing fences, and much to my chagrin. You know, when you when you have barbed wire fencing around your feeder, I mean, hog panels are the way to go, but if you're trying to bow hunt, uh, then you've got you to gotta stick with the barbed wire. If you're in a pop-up, if you're at a tree stand, it doesn't really matter. And in, on the Oklahoma place, we have uh, one of each. We have hog panels on one where we hunt a tree stand, and then we have a pop-up at our main feeder. But once the cows get in, it is hard to keep them out especially if you put big and J in there oh my God they love that stuff uh so here's my idea moving forward and y'all let me know if you've tried this or think it will work but hog panels on three sides and then four strand barbed wire on the side facing the pop-up think it'll work I don't know we'll see um I think we're going to give it a try otherwise because I, I do want to have a place where hogs can get in year round. I mean that's really the goal of that feeder for me anyway. Um, so I don't want to keep them out, but ultimately maybe it'll come to that. Uh, but what's your give me some feedback on if you've ever tried the combo of uh, hog panels and barbed wire. I think it I think it would work, but. We'll see how tight we can get that barbed wire on the fourth side. Um, What are we doing today? Let me tell you. A great show and uh, one that I'm excited about. So you know what to do. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of that Black Rifle coffee out of granddaddy's beat up old Stanley Thermos because uh, we are ready to rock and roll. And off the top, we're talking white tailed deer with Kip Adams, a longtime biologist over at the national deer association formerly the uh, quality deer management association the qdma as you might recall uh but you know if you've seen some of these videos lately of of deer eating animals like like there was one of a deer eating a snake that i saw a couple weeks ago what's up with that deer eating birds uh yeah interesting why are they doing that are they evolving or because i personally have no idea but i want to find out right So what's up with these deer trying the carnivore diet? Uh, We'll talk about that and maybe some nutrition, among other things, with Kip. And then we'll switch gears and do a little noodling with uh, a longtime friend of mine, Justin White, and his partner, Drew Moore. They recently caught what is believed to be the largest flathead catfish ever noodled and weighed on a certified scale. Did it right here in our backyard, Northeast Texas, on Lake Um uh, Where they caught this fish and the, the measures that these dudes take to try to find giant flatheads and blue cats, uh, it's unbelievable and, and very dangerous to be honest with you. So these good old boys will join us and we're gonna talk some hand fishing coming up here at the bottom of the hour. Uh, let's do a quick giveaway. The good folks over at Havalon loaded me up with their Paranta skinning knives, the ones that put them on the map. I think they retail for like 50 bucks, but uh, we'll give uh, a Paranta away. We'll throw in a Havalon cap. Just email the word whitetail. That's whitetail to Show at gmail.com. And you're entered into today's giveaway. Coming up next, Kip Adams of the National Deer Association joins us on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show.
2: She just caught the Jamestown Ferry. It's not a hot day January. Like she said it'd be if she ever
0: left me. Welcome everybody back into SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show presented by Mossberg Firearms. We're all set to talk some white-tailed deer uh, with National Deer Association's Kip Adams. This segment of the show brought to you by Stealth Cam and the DS4K wireless trail camera. The highest quality images that uh, you're going to get sent right to your cell phone. That's DS4K, even video quality, right there on your StealthCam Command app. You can find it at StealthCam.com. All right. Well, making his return to the show, although it's been uh, a couple years since our last conversation, but whitetail biologist and wildlife management expert, Kip Adams, great to have you back on. Yeah, good to see you too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I, don't, I know you've been on before. It's been a few years. Back then, though, it was just uh, we taped everything over the phone the gift of COVID is we get to do everything over zoom. So we actually get to see each other now. That's uh, right. Uh, that's, yeah.
1: So it's always a benefit. Nice to be able to look at somebody, even if you can't be in the same room as you're having a conversation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, tell me about, and I know it's been, gosh, it's been over a year, but the name change from QDMA to national deer association.
1: Yeah. it. You know, uh, Back in 2014, QDMA, who the organization I have been with for for more than 20 years now, we had the first National Whitetail Symposium. Mm -hmm. Um, What came out of that, and one of the things that came out of that, was the stakeholders said, you need to have a stronger advocacy arm. And uh, we said, okay, we'll do that. So we created that. That was always supposed to be a part of QDMA. Um, Through some bickering with board members and some other outside interests, That ended up being removed from QDMA, and it was its own organization. It was called the National Deer Alliance. Um, We worked very closely with the alliance for years, and then during COVID, we really had a second chance to do what we had intended the first time, which was have that be an arm of the organization. So we merged. So that is how the two got together. Now, we still have the same logo that QDMA always had. The name is different. Again, kind of a second chance to do the right thing. We've had some surveys over the years that we knew, uh, we had some really good data showing the name QDMA had some negative connotations with it relative to people who didn't own land or weren't interested in managing habitat or deer. So the word quality turned some people off. The word management, people thought, well, if I don't own a bunch of land, that's not for me. Um, So even though about a third of QDMA members didn't own a single acre of land, it was negatively impacting recruitment. So when we merged with the Deer Alliance, we said, you know what? Now's the perfect time. If we're going to make a splash, let's make a big splash and really get this right. So we selected the name National Deer Association, a name that resonates very well in deer camp, you know, with buddies like you and me, and a name that resonates well in the halls of Congress when Torn Miller, our senior director of policy, is in Washington, D.C., fighting on behalf of, of hunters rights. So uh so that's why we merged which essentially mm-hmm. it, it should have never been a part anyway And the reason for the name change. So uh we look at it as you know what uh, some folks are just never quite courageous enough to do what take a big swing on something they think is right. Yeah. Organizationally we said we think it is. So uh so that's what we did and that that's what brought us to the name National Deer Association and uh, the added benefit of that strong policy arm today.
0: Well, generally speaking, I'm uh, vehemently opposed to any kind of diversity, equity, inclusion, but this is one that makes sense. You know, <laughs> if you're alienating the uh, the, the non-land-owning non-land, deer hunter, then yeah, with that name, which I, I get, I don't own any land either, uh, but I, I'm in the industry. It doesn't. It wasn't uh, alienating to me, but I certainly can see how it would have been perceived. Like, yeah, well, you know, I'm only hunting for meat. What is... I don't care if it's a four point or an eight point or a twelve point. It's if it's, if it's in front of me, I'm going to shoot it and put it in the freezer. Yes, the quality right. deer management. Yeah, might not be for me. So yes, National Deer Association. Yeah, very inclusive. Um, so you guys are based out of Pennsylvania.
1: We we are completely remote now as an organization. We we used to be based out. Or we were based out of Georgia for Georgia you know, over twenty years. You're in Pennsylvania. I am in Pennsylvania. Yes, and uh, so we have. Uh, staff and in several different states. Uh, but through COVID, um, we are now a 100% remote organization. So okay. um, our, our CEO lives in Pennsylvania. Um, we have many staff in PA, we have many staff still in Georgia, um, and, and in several other states as well. So okay. you know, for me, it really didn't matter. I've, I've always been here and just travel the country to wherever I need to be to work. So uh, I've always worked remotely. So uh it's business yeah. as usual for me. It definitely was a little different from our folks who worked out of our national office. But uh, we have, uh, you know, it, that's been seamless transition into totally remote and uh, organizationally. We're even stronger or we're even more responsible. now. I should say, you know, with all of the money that's raised for conservation uh, allows us to do even more. When, when we're hiring new people, we can draw from a wider network. You know, folks don't have to move to a certain state. So uh, it's been it's been good for us. It's Been real yeah. good.
0: So your backdrop is a bunch
1: of rolling hills. Is is that Pennsylvania? That's not. That's actually uh, Victoria, Australia. Oh, wow. I was invited to Australia a couple months ago by the Australian Deer Association to go and meet with landowners, government officials, hunters, and uh, and to talk about some of the deer stuff we do here. Um, Actually, uh, Dr. Craig Harper from the University of Tennessee Dr. Bronson Strickland from Mississippi State University and I, the three of us went there together and uh, spent two weeks touring Victoria and Tasmania, met with all kinds of folks, gave all kinds of presentations and uh, did a little bit of hunting along the way as well. And uh, so, so this is actually south or southern Victoria that we're looking at here.
0: Okay. So I don't, I mean, I think the only deer species I know in Australia is, uh, is it sandbar? They have those there?
1: That actually is what we were hunting the day that I took this picture. Okay. They have six deer species, none of which are native.
0: Probably fallow. Have, Everybody has fallow. Yeah. So that fallow,
1: which is the, the predominant one in Tasmania, uh-huh. samber, which is what we we're hunting here in Victoria. They have red deer. Um, they have axis, like I see on your chair behind it. They call yeah. them a cheetle, but an axis yeah. is the same thing. Um, they have what? Uh, they have some what, some sick deer. Oh, what else do they have? Psycho deer, probably. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, ro- uh hog deer. So oh. we spent most of our time looking at hog deer, samber, and fallow deer habitat. But uh, okay. they have they have six species all together. So that was pretty okay. interesting. Are you knocking your computer by any chance or your desk? Um, you know, I had my hand, I think, on the base <laughs> of the microphone.
0: Okay, okay, yeah, there, no worries. Um, well, that's fascinating. I've. I, I've always wanted to go to Australia. It's on the list, Uh, probably in, like, the top five. There's a few other things I want to do first. But I did want to ask you, because it's been in the news a lot, they're trying to, like, and I don't know if it was in Victoria, somewhere they're trying to ban bow hunting in Australia and have made some progress. Uh, I don't know if that was something that you guys were speaking to or aware of.
1: It wasn't. And I haven't seen that. Um, mm. They're having major issues there with trying to the government trying to eradicate deer in uh, in several places. Mm. Um, it's amazing, though. Know, they don't have the value of deer there like we do here. Even if the average U.S. person doesn't hunt, you know, as Americans we recognize the value of deer. Um, yeah. In Australia, they don't. They you know they they see them as non-native, so we should get rid of them. But Can you imagine the US if, well, pheasants aren't native, if we try to get rid of all the pheasants, you know, and uh, red fox aren't native, we try to get rid of all. So anyway, it's, it's a very different culture and they have hunters there fighting to keep deer and literally government programs of aerial shooting, you know, like we do with hogs in many places to, to reduce populations that doing the deer and uh, they're shooting, just letting them lay very, very sad. Uh, We, we don't realize how lucky we do have it here uh, in the States. Yeah. Well, and so that
0: that, and you wouldn't think that even in the states. So I don't know if you've been to Hawaii, uh, and hunted axis deer there, but they treat those deer the same way as what you just described as a pest. Yes, there are outfitters that you know make a living selling axis deer hunts, but they pay people. And the guy, my my guide, did this in his former life, and then he was like, "Wait a second, I could be making money and actually helping the deer population." They just paid him by the night to go out and shoot every deer and every hog that he saw with the spotlight and just leave them there. Mm. Just get paid by... They call them eradicators. They get, You get either put on salary or paid by the night. Go shoot them all. Leave them lay. They don't care. Doesn't matter if it's 33-inch axis buck or a doe. It gets the same treatment. Mm. I was just like,
1: geez, man. This that's is, very similar to Australia then. But but they looked similar.
0: at it as... Uh, they're, they, you wouldn't think they'd be in a drought on Maui, but they were. And they're like... the. The real problem is for the farmers, not just the deer eating the the crop, but being a drain on the water table. Is that there's so many deer, they're consuming so much water, and you know we don't we don't have native servids uh, here, and so that they're they're being they're like, well, we've got to do something about these deer. So yeah, they don't they don't respect them, they don't treat them like we do for sure, and that's in the U.S. But <laughs> Hawaii is an interesting place. Yeah. I'm gonna look up Australia bow hunting ban um just because i want to make sure i wasn't throwing that out of nowhere Uh
1: i know that they are very all
0: australian states except tasmania allow
1: bow hunting huh interesting um yeah and i know a lot of there. i mean that they shoot during the day they shoot them at night they shoot them with thermals they shoot mm-hmm. them with spotlight um it's but it has to do with that you know yeah eradication part so uh you know, hunt them, hunt them all day. And as soon as it gets dark, turn the spotlight or your thermal scope on and keep on going. Yeah.
0: Well, I just got back from a bear hunt in um, British Columbia on Vancouver Island. Mm. And I learned a new term there. And my, um, my guide was telling me about um, his buddy was hunting and had a misfire and the gun went off in the, thank God it was pointed in the floorboard, but the, the gun went off and shot a hole through the bottom of the truck and he goes yeah and my buddy was up to no good anyway because he was pit lamping and i was like pit lamping what is that he goes i don't know it's where you get a spotlight and shine deer and shoot them what do, he's like what do you call it and i said well in texas we just call it spotlighting deer <laughs> <laughs> so pit
1: lamping interesting term there um yeah i hadn't heard that either i heard no like jack lighting yeah, is often yeah. uh, a term but um i hadn't heard of pit lamping either so yeah. <laughs> so i learned something new today as well Yeah. Um, it's exciting right now
0: to be, you know, a whitetail hunter invested in just, even if you don't own land, like I have two deer leases and I'm watching, you know, my antler growth and what, what bucks are starting to, to, uh, shape out as, and, and that's exciting times. I mean, this is really, it's like the doldrums of summer. We can still hunt hogs here, but it's so hot. There's not a lot going on. Most people are fishing or, you know, playing golf or doing something else. Um, but that's like the one thing, you know, you get your, your updates on your, on your cell phone and yeah. get to watch these deer put on antler. And, uh, and so that's always cool to, to see them and, and track their growth. Um, what, what like food sources are deer really targeting this time of year? Does it, I mean, does it change as, as they're putting on growth? I mean, I know the the browse is all seasonal, but what, what kind of diet are they really keying in on?
1: If, if possible, they're really keen in on an herbaceous diet right now, which is all of those broadleaf plants um, that we associate with old fields or, or early successional vegetation. So certainly ag crops, if they have the ability. Yep, that too. But uh, so the not woody stuff, you know, so it's more it's, it's before that. So it's, you know, anything else, like chicory, clover. It's all of the native forbs. Um, in general, deer don't eat grasses that much. Um, they much prefer broadleaf plants of which the Forbes fall into that broadleaf variety. Um, in general, we think, you know, livestock. Yep. They love grasses. Deer, not at all. When deer are eating a lot of grasses, um, it's usually because they're being limited nutritionally. So right now they're eating all the, that herbaceous material, those broadleaf plants, they can. Those things are, are very high in calcium, phosphorus and other minerals way higher than grasses are. And that's what bucks need for antler growth, what they need for body growth, what does need for you know, milk production for fawns. So, uh, so many hunters think of the fall as, okay, this is when I need to have nice food plots and a bunch of food to attract deer. The reality of it is spring and summer, that's when your habitat needs to be rocking. Mm-hmm. If you want to be a good deer manager, because that's the most critical time of the year for them and the most energetically expensive time of the year you know, grown antlers, feeding fawns. So uh that's right now there should be tons of high quality food available. And uh the largest segment of that is going to come from those broadleaf plants. Hmm. Well, and
0: I can just say from personally observing, you know, we have winter wheat fields pretty much on every place that I've ever leased. Uh what you know, whether it's the the landowner or sometimes they lease it out to a, a rancher and if they're running cows, you know, they want to they want to have a wheat field that they can bale up and feed the cows throughout the uh, winter. And I don't really see the deer in the winter wheat field in the spring and summer. Now come, you know, winter, they're, they're piled up in there. Maybe that's just, you know, that's what's available. And I know you said they don't really eat a lot of grass. I know they'll eat the winter wheat, but it seems to be a seasonal thing for them.
1: Very seasonal. And uh, those cereal grains, that that's the exception to the grass part. So mm-hmm. they're not eating the, you know, the cool season perennial grasses or the cool season annual grasses or even those warm season. So the cereal grains, oats, wheat, rye, they love those. Mm-hmm. Of course, corn is a grass. They're eating that. Um, but yes, from the winter wheat in winter wheat is great from you know where you are in Texas all the way to where I am in Pennsylvania and beyond. Um, I always plant winter wheat or winter rye. It's you know, in the fall, it is a great attractant. Deer love the forage and overwinters, then in the spring, it's one of the first things that greens up. So deer are on it immediately. Turkeys are out in it, and deer will eat that until it starts to put the seed head out. So as soon as that seed head's out, then they're not interested in that vegetation anymore. Once the seed head is mature. If it's an awnless variety or a beardless variety, you know it doesn't have those hairs on the seed. Then deer will literally eat every single seed head. If there's awns on them or those hairs, they won't eat them. Doves yeah. and a bunch of other birds, well, but but deer won't. So yes, they do like winter wheat, um, but and it, it is very seasonal as well. Yeah, they're not going to be eating that now there or or even here where I am. Unlike um, my hogs that can't stay out of it, it's like yeah. year round,
0: no, nonstop. They're in there. You yeah, know, it's yeah. like. And sometimes, you, middle of the day, they're in the winter wheat field. It's crazy. Um, let's take a quick break. We'll come back. And I want to get into uh, what, I, what I really want to talk about today. And, and that is white tailed deer going on the uh, carnivore diet, eating animal protein. Uh, it's very odd, but starting to see it all over social media semi regularly. Uh, that segment of the presentation was brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. And Big and J Whitetail Attractants. Uh, you want to see Big Bucks growing that antler this summer? It's a fun time. It's an exciting time to uh, watch them grow. Throw out a little BB squared from Big and J, and uh, the results will speak for themselves. I promise you that. Uh, you can find all of their attractants at j.com. We'll be right back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor
1: Show. It's one foot in the ether with the L.A. in
0: Blue. Land is the one thing they're not making any more of, but we all want it. And Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping its borrowers finance their own piece of paradise for over a 100 years. They'll do the same for you. If you're ready to take that next step and make the dream of owning your own land reality, then head over to LoneStarAgCredit.com. Let me tell you about the Armorside 640 contractor. It is the industry leading thermal technology in a very user friendly rifle scope. A 640 Armor Core 12 micro made in the USA Thermal Core. It's got a four hour onboard recording, four hour runtime on a full charge, USB and Wi Fi streaming, uh, eight user selectable reticles and six color palettes, and the most user friendly interface out there. Because you're operating these things in the dark. So uh, that's very important. You can find the contractor, the 640, or its little brother, the 320, right there at Armorsite.com.
2: on i three damn days now. When will I see your face again? But the show goes...
0: The music of Rance May and the Coyotes bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith riding shotgun with you as always. Thanks for dropping by as we're talking white tailed deer today with National Deer Association's Kip Adams. We'll get back into that conversation in just a second. This segment, though, brought to you by the ruggedly reliable Mossberg Patriot, American made rifles. That are going to perform in the field and not break the bank. Offering everything from uh, 22,250 up to dangerous game calibers like a 375 Ruger. You can find the Patriot at Mossberg.com. Okay, Kip, well, thanks for sticking around through the break. Uh, let's get into what I really want to discuss. You know, I've seen some of these viral videos lately come up where deer are eating the damnedest things and i'm talking about like animal protein like they're eating a baby bird they're eating an egg uh a chick um they're eating the most recent one was a snake this deer's chowing down on a like a freaking snake i don't and i've never thought of uh, deer as omnivores so can you explain to us what this phenomenon is why are these deer eating animal protein?
1: Yeah. and you're right they're really not omnivores you know they're, they're herbivores their teeth are very much designed to eat plant material um, but we have lots of examples of them eating other things um, you mentioned you know, that recent snake I think everybody in the country has seen that um, mm-hmm. birds eggs lots of examples of them eating fish uh, examples of them chewing on other you know fawns um, spent cartridge shells lots of different things so part of it is i think uh nutrition related there might be a mineral that they're missing deer are very good at being able to key in on something that their diet's lacking so that can play into it a little bit i think a lot of that though is just curiosity from some of these um Mm. the i have watched deer around bird's nest you know stare like it's just kind of trying to figure out what this little thing is hopping around and then end up eating it and uh you know I don't know that they were actually hungry. I don't know that they were seeking a certain mineral. I think it was a curiosity thing and it, it just grabbed it. Um, the snake was an interesting one of all the things I've seen them eat. Um, fish, yeah, that kind of seemed like a dead fish along you know, a, a raceway at a fish hatchery or something. I can totally see curiosity there. And, oh, let's try it. Deer get actually most of the water that they need through their diet, uh-huh. you know, through the plants that they're eating. So something that is very wet, fish snake you know there might have been some you know um something appealing about that i think more than anything else though it was you know something that was unique uh i do wonder though with the deer there clearly was a fence right behind the deer that deer Mm -hmm. was definitely tame you know i wonder if that snake i I really doubt that that deer killed that snake i think the snake was probably dead um you know who's to say you know it's possible that was a staged picture where you know a captive deer. Somebody might have put some type of attractant on that dead snake, you know, and then filmed the deer eating it. And then, oh, look at this! He's eating the snake. Because um, that was a really big snake for yeah. uh, you know a deer to be picking up and eating. Now, that's that's not normal behavior at all. So, uh, um, deer are cool. They do some strange things. Um, fortunately, we have cameras and trail cameras out now to, to be able to catch a few of those. But uh, definitely not something you're going to see on a daily basis, or or something that that would happen very often at all.
0: Huh. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious. And I think it's probably, it's probably always happened, but not everybody had a cell phone, you know, 30 years ago. So now we can see I have seen
1: some really cool things, you know, when I was in graduate school at a deer research facility, you know, back in the nineties, you know, way before cell phones that I would give anything to have had a cell phone when I was out, you know, with a captive deer to, 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 to video this. So you're right. There's just more opportunities than ever before to capture that stuff. You know, we see more, Bucks that are locked up than ever before, and part of that is yes, we have older an older age structure of bucks than we've ever had across Whitetails range. But yeah, we have a lot more cameras in the woods on our sides on our pockets all the time. But mm-hmm. regardless of this, that's still really cool that that deer was chonking on that steak. You <laughs> yeah. know that, that that's that's a pretty neat pretty neat yeah. video that that guy got.
0: Fascinating for sure. um Well, that that was the main thing that I wanted to ask you. I will say this: How does a Explain to us how a, a cervid's rumen works and what what its function is.
1: Yeah. So a deer or you know, deer are cervids. So they have four chambers to the stomach. So one big stomach with four chambers. The first is the rumen, and the rumen is by far the largest of the four. So some of deer. my
0: listeners are probably pretty familiar with this, having been proficient gut shooters of, uh, <laughs> of deer.
1: <laughs> if you hit them in the stomach, you likely hit them in I, the rumen.
0: I know uh, I sh- the first deer I ever, the first buck I ever shot, I I gut shot and was like, oh, I hope I never do that again. Uh, and I'm sure that I have, but uh, I think more times it's happened when I've been cleaning a deer and punctured. Yeah. You know, you've got a sharp Havilon and like, oops, there's that smell. Wow, well, yeah, no, that sucks. But yeah, that's the rumen. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: So they eat food, it goes to the rumen. Mm -hmm. And then what they do is they don't chew their food entirely. You know, they get it as big of a piece as they possibly can swallow, swallow it, fill that rumen and then go hide and then ruminate. Ruminate means they regurgitate that food from the rumen back to their mouth. And that's when they chew it into small pieces. So this is a defense strategy. When you're exposed feeding, eat as quickly as you can and then go hide in the safety of cover and digest Mm -hmm. them. So they eat, it goes to the rumen, it comes back to their mouth, they chew it, smaller pieces, it goes down, back into the rumen, passes through the rumen, into the next chamber is the reticulum. From there, it moves into the third chamber, which is the the omasum. And uh, each of these, if you open them up inside, they all look very different. The Mm -hmm. rumen is full of all these little microvilli, so all these little finger-like projections. And what that does is it increases surface area. It allows, so say a deer's rumen is this big because it has all those villi on it. If it didn't have those, it would have to be this big to have about the same amount of material. So it allows mm. that to be smaller so that the deer can be faster, quicker, more agile, which is really cool. The inside of the reticulum looks like a honeycomb. The inside of the old mason looks like, like a bunch of folds like in a book and it's often called the book. Um, then the last one is the abomasum. That's what's most similar to our stomachs. Um, and then by the time it gets there, it's essentially all the fluid is pulled out of this, all the nutrients are out, they're being digested. So then from the abomasum, it goes into their intestines. Um, but uh, the other three, the reticulum, omasum and abomasum, very small relative to the rumen. The rumen is the really big one. So mm-hmm. if you're gonna do uh, stomach content analysis, where you actually can pull stuff out of the stomach, wash it off. And a lot of times still see, this is what, so they do food analysis of deer. You can see berries, leaves, corn, acorns, et cetera, you know, and get an idea of things that deer eat that is always being done from the rumen. Cause once it gets past the rumen, then it it's, you know, you can't tell any of that anymore. Mm, so, one thing that's cool with that with fawns, think about fawns drinking milk, you know, uh, milk doesn't need to be regurgitated. So the way fawns get around it is they have a, what's called a, a ruminal reticular groove. When a fawn is drinking, that groove actually closes to bypass the rumen. So that milk goes straight to the reticulum, oh. which is super cool. And it yeah. takes the suckling action of the fawn to do that. So if you grab a fawn and you pour milk down, it's going to go either into its lungs or into the rumen. That groove uh. won't open. But when that fawn is actually suckling on that doe's udder, that makes that groove close. So it can completely bypass the rumen and right to the reticulum. So super cool way that the deer are built.
0: Well, now I've learned something interesting today, mm-hmm. for sure. It's fascinating. Um, do you guys do a lot of uh, predator hunting um, in Pennsylvania? It's a coyote mm-hmm. management and stuff like that.
1: We do. There's a lot of coyotes, a lot of bobcats, a lot of coons. Um, Although when I was a kid growing up in Pennsylvania, you know, all of my buddies had coon dogs. We hunted all the time. Almost nobody does that anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. There is quite a bit of of a coyote and bobcat hunting now. Um, Most of that is calling, you know, where, but uh, there is a fair amount of of running those with dogs as well. Um, Problem is you have to have big areas, you know, to keep those hounds, you know, off, places are not supposed to be, which, which can be very problematic, but there is some of that, but there is a fair amount of predator hunting that goes on. Um, Most realize, look, we're, we're not saving additional fawns. We're not making a difference in how many survive just because it's so timbered and it's so mountainous in a bunch of Pennsylvania that you just simply can't kill enough coyotes to make a difference. So uh, that hunting is done purely from a a recreational standpoint, lots of coyotes, lots of opportunity, go and have fun with it and uh you know shoot some shoot some coyotes along the way what
0: if you are implementing like in texas for example aerial gunning we do a lot of uh, feral hogs but you know a pile of coyotes typically get shot in those scenarios um and then also snaring trapping so do there's no aerial
1: that? gunning in pennsylvania okay um, but do you believe
0: those things could make a difference especially if you if you did it religiously springtime or into early
1: summer when these fawns are hitting the ground there are a few places in pennsylvania that are open enough with high enough densities of coyotes that that yes you could that way um so much of pennsylvania we have we are really really forested and so much of it that um it's just simply not a a viable technique Mm. you know you just simply can't see enough to of coyotes to be able to, to shoot them that way um mm-hmm. snaring we do have snaring um and uh, and a, i don't know if a lot of trappers use that but certainly a, a fair number of trappers will snare um you know even coyotes aren't worth anything you know their hides anymore um you know compared to what yeah. they used to be so it's a pretty small number of people that trap anymore uh whether it's raccoons you know possum, well, skunks, buddy, so many example, more nest predators than ever because oh, folks yeah. just aren't doing it. You know? yeah. That kind of goes for coyote snaring as well. Well,
0: and our agricultural practices have changed as well, which I think also lends to, you, you have one factor, people aren't doing it because the pelts aren't worth as much. And then number two, we have more agriculture, which means now we have more food for these predators, mm-hmm. uh, scavengers and um, varmints. Uh, <laughs> more food for them and less pressure on them. Well, of course, their population's pretty much going unchecked. But uh, I guess for this, let me just lay this situation out. So you have uh, 1,500 acres in South Texas, and you may be high fenced, you may not be, but you have fence around your property where you can snare. Can you make a difference in that situation um, where you're, you know, you're running a, a trap line and you're checking it a couple times a week? Um, and really and maybe you're doing it in a in a window where you think you know certainly deer are most vulnerable uh and maybe coyotes um i don't know if once they have pups on the ground if they travel more or less but i don't know just uh
1: do you think that can actually help with your you, deer? you hurt? can make a difference if you uh snare or trap at a very intensive rate mm-hmm. and uh what happens is people who are successful at it do that just before the fawning season to try to reduce some of those coyote numbers before fawns hit the ground. The reality of it is, though, the next year, those numbers are often right about coyote numbers, about where they were before you started. There's some research that shows you have to remove about 75% of a coyote population to reduce it, you know, because they just huh. compensate with additional breeding. So the answer is yes, but it's an incredibly intensive effort. That you have to maintain year after year after year. Most people that get into that, they think that's great for you know one to three years, and they realize, holy cow, you know I just can't. Um, and the the results are mixed from research end on. Does it do anything from a fawn standpoint? Some will say, some show, yeah, we actually saw an increased fawn survival. Others, you know, not that much. So uh, my take on it is, I'm I'm huge on habitat enhancement. And what we know is that if we provide really good fawning cover and fawning cover spread throughout a property so that the majority of, of does can take advantage of it, that more than anything else is the best way to increase fawn survival. If you want to trap as well, certainly nothing wrong with that, mm-hmm. but you're not going to fix your fawn survival problem by trapping alone. So you can do that in addition to good habitat work, but you're going to save more fawns by ha- by doing good habitat work and having that really good cover.
0: And I guess if your buddy's not doing the same thing, then, you know, kind of what's the point, right?
1: That's the same thing. You know, they move in all the time from next door, you know, and some of these coyotes move so far, it's crazy. You know, the number of miles that some of this research has shown they'll go. So uh, yeah, you're never going to get rid of them. And uh, you know, there seems to be about a number that, you know, they can limit or self-regulate themselves, the numbers that'll be in an area. So, uh, you know, you take some out more, just move in. So Mm -hmm. you're, you're a, better to fix it with habitat go ahead and hunt them and have fun hunting them you know it's a great recreational opportunity um just don't expect to save a lot of fawns by hunting or trapping alone so or i should say trap as well because i love the trap so mm-hmm. you know that's that's a great use of time and outdoor activity um but uh you're you're not going to help yourself from a deer end by by doing that alone
0: i want to ask one more question as we're wrapping up here because you mentioned coyotes moving extreme distances and you know you've always heard during the rut of course bucks will travel and we know that because I'm hunting this buck and then here comes you know I've got him on camera here's archery season I I don't run into him and then he's gone and he shows up he shows back up in January so we know they travel but how far typically when you say a buck travels I mean how far are they going I I was hunting a 10 point uh he was at my feeder every night but i was only getting nighttime photos of him and our lease is four thousand acres and a guy on the completely different side of the property ended up shooting him at like four o'clock in the afternoon And i'm like dang it i was happy for him i was like hey great job rodney you know let send me a picture he said i just shot the biggest buck of my life and i was like cool send me a picture send me the picture i'm like dang it <laughs> <laughs> i was like i'm still happy for him I, I, uh, you know we got back to camp i'm all high fives i'm i'm You know, I'm a team player, um, which I think everybody should be is we should be happy for everybody's harvest. And so my son was more my son's 10. He's like, man, you know, dad, that sucks. You know, I'm like, don't say that word, son. And and no, when we get back to camp, we are only going to say congratulations. And we're going to be happy for him because, you know what, that guy would be happy for you. And we all collectively as a community need to be supportive of each other's uh, accomplishments. But but what was surprising was how far that that deer was. I was like. So it made me realize that Buck, because he, he ended up having him on camera at daylight hours almost every day. So he was coming, and it was taking him, you know, half of the night to get to my yeah. setup. But he wasn't living by me. He was living by Rodney's place. And uh, But I, I was, like, shocked that that deer on such a big property was, was really living over there but still coming to eat my uh,
1: protein in the middle of every night. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of deer movement studies out there from North to South and some great stuff out of Texas. Um, basically it shows that every deer is an individual. And while bucks on average, you know, have a home range of about a square mile, which is 640 acres. It's all over the place from that. Some are homebodies and they just don't travel that far. Some travel a lot, you know, some of the Texas stuff, you know, this deer had home ranges of well over 2000 square miles that were traveling. So, uh, um, So it's all over the board, you know, where those are. That's why with game cameras, you know, you can kind of key in on, Hey, I'm getting this deer regularly or like your case, I'm getting him regularly, but only at night, as opposed to, man, I get like one picture a year of this deer. If that's the case, probably not a deer you want to hold out for. If it's a deer you're getting regularly, then yeah, you know, maybe he does spend more time there. Um, I think that's one of the things that makes whitetail so cool is that, you know, there are a lot of personality differences, movement preferences so we, we know definitely some average you know home range and movements and all that but uh everybody's a little different we do know though that as they age they tend to not move as far so you know when they get into that five and six year old age class they definitely are moving less or in covering less ground in general now not to say that you know like during the rut they're not taking off but uh in general they just don't move as much they become a little more sedentary so uh that that is a you know, a pretty good rule of thumb, but, uh, up to that point, man, it's all over the board, how much they, they want to travel. In. It's kind of up to the individual deer. So that
0: experience, it left me with the realization I'm sitting there thinking I've just got this nocturnal buck and I'm hoping that, you know, the rut's going to make him slip up. But the reality was he wasn't at nocturnal at all. He was just taking his, you know, his midnight stroll every night to get over to my setup by you know three o'clock in the morning or whatever it was. And then he was going back there. So I don't know if I ever would have caught up to that buck in in daylight, you know?
1: Yeah, maybe not. You're right, though, in thinking that, hey, he's just not moving nocturnally right now. You know, we'll keep at it. And and that Mm. entirely could have been it. He could have been right in that area where you were hunting and literally just not moving until, you know, later. Mm. Um, So you you never really know unless you have multiple cameras and you can pick him up on multiple cameras, you know, multiple times. so. To see, oh you know what? He's always headed this way, and it takes him this long to get here. You know, then you can sometimes get a little better idea of where they may be coming from. But uh, yeah, in your case, it could have absolutely been just as likely that he was bedded somewhere nearby, and you know, just wasn't getting up and moving until later. Yeah, well, and
0: it's totally different though. At least 200 acres in Oklahoma, and on that place, I can figure out probably where where deer is coming from, how long it's taking him to get there. It's a small property, the 4,000 acres. I could have put out 50 more cameras and never figured out, you know, what game trail that buck was using on a place that big. So, um, well, fascinating stuff, Kip. I certainly appreciate you jumping on today. And uh, I don't know, do you put in – one thing always fascinates me about Pennsylvania, you guys obviously have a great um, whitetail deer hunting heritage. I think. I think Pennsylvania – when it comes to deer shot is like right up there with texas is is i think we shoot the most deer between the two states do we not
1: we do you guys always shoot more deer than any other state um pennsylvania is always right at the top for the number of deer shot per square mile so uh so yeah we both of our states definitely are leaders uh, in the deer hunting world with with numbers of deer hunters numbers of deer hunters per square mile etc so uh all, yeah. I mean, deer hunting is pretty cool in a lot of places and in no places is it greater than uh, Texas and Pennsylvania. Yeah. Well, so that,
0: that's always uh, been something that I've, I've known about you, Pennsylvanians. But but also
1: you guys have an elk herd. So mm-hmm. do you put in for the elk draw? I do. Um, we have tremendous elk hunting opportunities. If you get a tag, um, right. we kill some of the biggest bulls of anywhere in the United States in, huh. in Pennsylvania each year. It's a, it's a really well-managed resource, limited number of people that get in. But if you draw a bull tag, um, you stand a chance of killing an absolute whopper. So uh, I have two young kids. And uh, so each year we put in for the elk lottery. Um, and it's, if nothing else, it's a, a $10 donation to you know a good cause. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun as you're waiting, you know, for the lottery to come out. You know, anticipation in a way like, oh, man, maybe they'll draw us, maybe they'll draw us. Chances are they're not, but Hey, you got to play to win. So, uh, it's a lot of fun to have, uh, with the kids as, as we wait for that elk lottery.
0: All I got this year for my elk draws was unsuccessful, unsuccessful, <laughs> unsuccessful, but, so uh, I, you know, but it's, it's also fun to play the game out West and build points in X state. And then I'm not uh, the guy that's trying to get, you know, 25 points in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can, you can hunt, every you know fourth or fifth year in wyoming and montana and maybe you mix in get drawn in new mexico and go otc in colorado i mean there's there's ways to to make sure that you can elk hunt every season um so
1: yeah i've gone otc in colorado twice and uh you know do-it-yourself hunts and i've had you know a phenomenal time out there and just mm. you know love the rocky mountain experience and all that so um yeah there's there's definitely ways and you know I'm um, like Pennsylvania's, white tails more
0: than, Pennsylvania's Rocky mountain elk and hardwoods though. Huh?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 Hmm. So a little that's bit same. different, but a uh, big animals for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, I certainly appreciate the time. Um, y'all check it out. National deer association. Kip, we appreciate you. And, uh, thanks for all you
1: do. All right. Thank you, Cable. Good seeing you. All right. Have you a great too. summer.
0: Likewise. So there you have it. Kip Adams of the national deer association. That segment of the show brought to you by the NUMA Pathfinder Pant. It's what I live in. Really, 365. um, From, you know, filling feeders the other day to crawling around the African or South Texas brush to the boathouse or to the bar, the Numa Pathfinder Pant is perfect for all occasions. You can find it at NumaOutdoors.com, and you'll save 20% off when you use that promo code LONESTAR20 at checkout. Up next, a couple East Texas good old boys join us live in studio. They recently set the noodling world on fire. And we'll get into that catch of a lifetime right here on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show.
3: Some say a silenced gunshot is the baddest sound out there. At Silencer Central, we have another favorite. It's the sound of silence
1: delivered to your front door. When you buy from Silencer Central, we handle your application, set you up with a free NFA gun trust, and deliver your silencer straight to you. With an average 90-day turnaround time when you use e-forms, buying a silencer is simpler than ever. Visit silencercentral.com and we'll help you get started.
0: Time to tell you about Protect products. Veteran-owned and made in the USA, Protect makes your water work harder for you in the field. They have a hydration electrolyte formula for endurance and replenishment. It's perfect for elk hunting, right? Uh, Energy formula for when you need an extra kick. Immunity for optimizing the immune system. And one of my favorites, the rest formula to ensure deep sleep and proper recovery. All the formulas are liquid, so they mix instantly in your water bottle or Camelback. And the cool thing is, They don't gunk them up like a powder with that messy residue. They also have an easy-to-use line of mineral sunscreen for quick and odorless application and all-day protection in the field. For more info, head over to Protect.com to see their entire lineup. That's Protect, P-R-O-T-E-K-T.com.
2: Hey, this is Mitch Moreland with the Texas Rangers. Thanks for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show with my buddy Cable Smith. Mud between my two.
3: The first day of sun I cut me a cane pole
1: I go
0: Of course it had to be Guthrie Kinnard, Catfish Fishing, catfish bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show presented by Mossberg Firearms. I'm Cable Smith. We're about to talk some hand fishing for giant catfish noodling, if you will. Uh, if you haven't done it, well, let me just say it's not for everyone, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, and we've got two experts in the craft here in studio in the form of my old friend, Justin White and Drew Moore. And this segment is brought to you by the Vortex Sun Slayer hoodie. Keep those harmful UV rays off your skin and keep yourself light and breezy in the Sun Slayer. It's essentially what I'm wearing Uh, every time I'm on the boat. I'll be wearing it down uh, in Galveston Bay this weekend, actually. Uh, You can find the Sun Slayer and Vortex's entire apparel lineup at vortexoptics.com. All right, well, joining us now live in studio, it is my pleasure to welcome my friend, uh, Justin White, and uh, his good buddy and noodling partner, Drew Moore, to the show.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having us.
0: My pleasure. So this is about a... Two-hour haul for you guys?
2: It is. Well, (laughs) it's supposed to be about two hours, but, of course, traffic, it made it, you know, at least 30 minutes longer.
0: And y'all are coming from the East Texas area?
2: Yes, sir. I'm coming from Canton, and he actually comes from, like, the Tyler area. Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, thanks for making the trip. Absolutely. Um, I guess noodling has been legal in Texas since 2011, but, you know, would you guys admit that despite it being illegal and a potential $500 fine – uh, Texas always had a kind of a subculture of of noodlers
3: oh yeah, oh yeah i I, I know of people that's been doing it since you know late nineties and stuff, but, yeah, uh-huh,
2: they were a little so, bit more great. slick about it back in the day. you know, a lot of people went at night and stuff when it wasn't as noticeable, but yeah. oh, yeah, it's definitely been around, yeah, or people have been doing it a lot longer in Texas than two thousand eleven
0: I think there's like seventeen states or eighteen states that that mm. allow it, yeah. But I mean we didn't all just learn from from Okies,
3: right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thought, People have been doing I, I have not, but I think that's what the issue is on like Nodland not having its own categories is specifically because it's not legal in every state. Uh, yes.
0: Yeah.
3: Uh well Justin, you know, I've um
0: I've gone with you through our, our mutual friend Josh Wiley of Ruttenstrut Outdoors. Yes, sir. And we've we've caught some some nice fish. Um I think I've been twice with you. What would you say is the, the best time of the year to go noodling?
2: Man, it just depends if you're after the blue cats or the flatheads. The the blue cats is gonna be, you know, mid May, but for the bigger flatheads, we really love the month of June. It really mm-hmm. to us it don't get no better than that. Okay. And it does seem like the end of June is every year we typically catch some of our bigger fish into June. Huh. And even early July. Right now it's starting to, you know, die off. After July fourth, we typically don't get in the water much, but late June is probably the best time for us.
0: It's been pretty, I mean, it's always hot in Texas in June, but it's like, um, I was, (laughs) I told you, Henry and I went striper fishing on Texoma. Yeah. And my buddy, longtime friend of mine and the guide was like, dude, the water temperature is 85 degrees. He's like, I usually don't see it hit 85 until August. Yeah.
2: And y'all probably out there in the deeper water too. Not, you know, real shallow to the bank. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, And that's, we typically can catch them really good up to July 4th, but honestly, you know, we actually went yesterday and it's getting, it's getting tough. You know, we'll check, you know, six or seven holes that typically have fish in them every time that, you know, we go six or seven holes and don't touch a fish. Finally, Mm. you know, we'll run into one, but it's, yeah, the, the heat's been crazy this year. Like I said, it's hot every year in June, but something about this year, it's been yeah something different.
0: Yeah. Um, so When we've gone noodling together, uh, it's always been flatheads that we've Mm -hmm. caught. We've probably went in June as well. Uh, Some in, you know, upper 30s, maybe 40-pound range, Mm -hmm. some nice fish. And, I mean, those things fight like hell. The thing that I was most surprised about as, you know, after catching a couple of them was the, like, disgusting thing that happened to my wrist. Yes. (laughs) Where it was like all, like, it was like a rash and then it just started to fester and then it sticks to your sheets when you're trying to sleep, you know. So the next time I came, I had on like some I've
2: some sleeves, or something. some some yeah. sleeves to protect my
0: yeah. my wrists. Um, yeah, I don't think people realize that. And I, catfish have, I guess, their tiny little teeth.
2: Yeah, and the bigger they get, I mean, it seems like their teeth, you know, get bigger with it. Because we've this particular big fish that we caught. Actually, in both of our hands, we had like fish or the the teeth stuck in our hand, and they'll put oh, wow. a little splinter, and they'll just kind of fester back up, and you squeeze them out.
0: Oh wow. Yeah, So blues or flatheads, and you've told me that, because we've only caught flatheads, mm-hmm. you said that blues fight harder.
2: Well, it's not necessarily that they fight harder, but they're a lot more aggressive and they bite. Oh, bite harder. Three or four times harder than a flathead. I oh. mean, they hurt. They <laughs> honestly do. Yeah. And you need to come experience that with us next year. It's a totally different ball game with them blue cats.
0: I remember the first time I stuck my hand in a, in a 40-pound catfish's mouth, and it bit me. I didn't, I don't I think I let go. It stayed yeah. in the hole. Yeah. We ended up getting it. But yeah. I came back up and I was yes. like wide-eyed. And like, i like, what, what just uh, happened? Yeah. <laughs> it looked like you done seen
2: a ghost. I remember yeah. that.
0: Yeah. And, and so you're saying the blue cat bites three times oh, harder than that. Yeah. Uh. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. So do you find these fish, when you're talking about blues, which you target in May, mm-hmm. flatheads in June, do you find them in the same haunts? Or do you have to look in, in different types of of structure or habitat?
3: i mean early may you'll find big blues and and typically your good flathead holes right mm-hmm. and then as that good time of year comes around mid june you know early, even early june could be really good depending on the weather i guess but early june you might have to pull some blues out your ways and then whenever the time's right you'll start catching just you know your big flatheads you were looking for out of the same ones you just moved them blues out of huh. it, okay.
0: It's
2: it's almost like the flatheads like come in and just like take over Okay. I don't, like, because there's like almost like a switch that flips that the blues kind of just move out and the flatheads move in, but then later in the year, like in July, you can start catching blues again and the flatheads will kind of be gone.
0: So is it all spawn related or mm-hmm. yeah? It is yep. okay. Um, so what? I mean, I think you know you can c- catch these things in all kinds of depths, but considering you're walking around, you know, where are you targeting as far as how how deep are you going?
2: I mean, we've caught them. We've got particular holes that we checked that are 16 to 17 foot deep. Oh, wow. And we've got some that are knee deep. I mean, mm-hmm. like when I took you, some of the stuff we were fishing was, you know, waist deep. Yeah. And that's honestly probably some of the better stuff is, you know, like that real shallow waist to chest deep. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think just later in the year, it seems like maybe they kind of move farther out to kind of stay with that cooler water temp. Because, you know, the knee deep water is, bull and, you know, bull and hot. Yeah. So. I think that's kind of the – but typically about waist and chest deeps our best stuff, really. Uh-huh. Okay. It's
3: a lot easier that way, too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You get yeah. out and you're chest deep or something. You can still breathe, you know, go down and keep your feet in yeah. it and come up and get your breath if you need it versus – Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah, and that
0: was one of the things that, you know, I didn't realize. Once you find a fish, you don't always catch him the first time you go down. Yeah. And a lot of times he'll be, all right, somebody put your foot here and block so he doesn't mm-hmm. get out. Yeah. Um, exactly. Because they're pretty, they're pretty attached to their hole. They don't yep. really want to leave. Yeah.
2: So I mean, it just depends on the fish. Some of them, you know, some of them don't want nothing to do with you, and they'll try to just leave the hole. And some of them are ready to fight. They sit there defend that hole. You know, you probably can't make them leave. Yeah. So yeah. it really just depends on the fish, I guess, on that aspect. But,
0: mm-hmm. uh, Drew, what would you say is the most treacherous aspect of noodling?
3: Man, there's I mean there's a there's a mile long list of that you know. Uh,
0: Snakes, turtles, drowning.
3: Yeah, I don't I don't think I've ever really been worried as much about turtles or you know anything being <laughs> because, you know, think about it this way: these fish are in a hole that, you know, they could possibly get trapped in. So something that has to have air, such as a turtle or a snake like that, more than likely are probably not going to go in there and trap themselves in there. You yeah. Know? So I think my biggest thing that. Luckily I've never run across, but does, you know, every once in a while we check some leery holes and we're like, Man, you know, I don't know what this is a beaver a rat uh-huh. I think those are I think I would definitely steer away from those if, if it come down to the Yeah. To the you know
0: Yeah. Yeah. But
3: there I mean there's I mean there's like I say, there's mile on list. You get you sometimes you are fishing up under the trees and stuff, then you do have snakes. You do have you know, sometimes you walk across the ground, you do have turtles, you, you yeah. never know. Yeah. And you and you know obviously the biggest fears you're in the water you've got to have air to breathe you know what's the chances of you not coming there. up are pretty yeah. good you know you gotta be really careful so.
2: or you know like a lot of them fish you know kind of hollow out under some concrete or something well eventually that concrete's gonna give out since there's nothing kind of supporting it so there's always that chance of getting under there and getting stuck or it collapsing on you or yeah. you know that kind of aspect have
0: but. you ever had any close call
3: well, sometimes you'll find you a crack or something but you, you know you find a fish and then kind of run your arm up to get you to get a little bit, a little farther and a little farther and a little farther. The next thing you know, you got to kind of do the same thing to get back out of it. And then yeah. that's kind of, you know, that's not smart. Yet, and
2: honestly, probably my biggest, you know, I guess, kind of freak out moment is catching actually like them big blue cats because mm-hmm. they bite down so hard and, you know, they'll bite you and you get them to the, you know, the door trying to get them out. Well, they've already, you know, sanded that bed and kind of silted that door back closed. Where you got to kind of dig them out. They won't come straight out. And you know if you ain't got your air, you know if you can't breathe, you're kind of freaking out because they'll bite down so hard you can't hardly get your hand back out of their mouth. So you got to just pry your hand out to get you know back up to the surface, get some air because they'll they clamp down hard and they don't want to let go.
0: So you've you've lost I'm thinking countless fish then that have that you've well had to let go because you're like oh not, crap
2: not necessarily lost them but had to just you know pry my hand out of their mouth because they wouldn't fit out of the hole mm-hmm. and I was starting to run out of air. You know we come back down and kind of move some dirt around, get them out, but that freak out moment, you know, when you're starting to run out of air and it won't <laughs> yeah. let go of you and you got to pry your hand out, it rips your glove off or whatever. I mean, it, but they, they do clamp down hard. So
0: do you know how long you can hold your breath for?
2: Um, I, mean, it's, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. If it we've depends. Time.
3: and we, We've both talked about it. If we're going down and checking the hole and there's no fish in the hole, we run out of breath a lot faster. Yeah. If we go down and there's a fish in there and it's biting us, then there's, for whatever reason, there's like a second wind we get Yeah, we stay down uh. a little bit longer. You know, uh, 45 seconds, 50 seconds is a pretty good time to – I'm yeah.
2: going to say, I mean, maybe a minute, mm. maybe a little over a minute. Those seem
0: now. like rookie stats for some hardcore noodlers, You guys need yeah. to pump I mean, but those we're, we're numbers kind of, up. <laughs>
2: yeah, but we're kind of spooled now because we've got that hookah dive system. Oh, that, okay. The compressor that stays in the boat. So, if it's something very deep, you know, better safe than sorry, we take yeah. that air with us. So. Okay. That that helps us a lot on
3: that.
0: That seems pretty fancy for it is for some rednecks. Yes,
3: it <laughs> is. It's very nice. And that's why we still have thirty second. You know, that's yeah. how we can hold our breath for thirty yeah. seconds because we're spooled to that air. Yeah. yeah,
0: So that's probably not very common uh, for people to have that luxury. Well, there's it's
2: actually yeah, there's, there's actually quite a bit of, of people that use some something similar at least some sort of breathing machine. Huh. You know, a lot of people go even to Harbor Freight buy an oilless compressor and. Put some air hoses on it and a regulator and go diving, you know. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't necessarily recommend that route. I'd rather go something that's made for the job. You know what I mean? Yeah. So,
0: so if you're talking about going 15 feet down, mm-hmm. these lakes are the visibility's terrible. I imagine yes. finding yes. that hole. It's completely is difficult. just
2: by feel. Yeah, we don't we don't wear goggles or nothing because especially you get down that deep. Even if you did have goggles, I mean, the visibility in these lakes are maybe a foot, I would say. Yeah. Maybe a foot and a half, but you get down 14, 15 foot deep, it gets dark. And so it's it's just by feel, feeling around pretty much. Uh-huh. And, you know, like I said, we ain't got goggles, so we got our eyes closed. <laughs> we probably don't want to see what's going on down <laughs> there anyway, so.
0: Uh-huh. Let's do this. We'll take a quick commercial break. We'll come back. I want to talk about this fish that you guys just caught. Absolutely perfect that segment was brought to you by all Seasons Feeders and the 300 pound stain and fill and uh, the good folks over at lone star ag credit we'll be right back on the lone star outdoors show It's that time of the year where you might want to try to kick off a new year with a fitness journey. Cryo and More has all your holistic healing needs with cold therapy, heat therapy, and pressure therapy, which shortcuts the time you have to spend recovering from your workout or minimize the muscle soreness you feel from physical activity. Cryo Skin is a body hack that speeds up the death cycle of the fat cells using non-invasive technology that uses heat and cold to eliminate fat cells. Your greatest wealth is your health. Visit cryoandmore.com or head over to the location off of Virginia Parkway in McKinney. If you're looking for a new gun safe, you need to check out the Performance Firearm Storage Solutions from It. Unlike traditional safes, Securit products are designed to perform for you. They're lightweight, so you can discreetly store them in any room in the house, and the interior is completely customizable to fit your guns and gear. I would know; I've got four of them. Their fast-access storage system keeps my guns and optics organized so they never touch each other or get damaged, and I'm never more than an arm's length away from a firearm. The best part, they're always running great sales. Head over to SecuritGunStorage.com backslash cable to see their latest promotion and you can thank me later say it ain't so
3: say it ain't last call oh whiskey on the rocks and Adderall. oh
2: whiskey on the rocks and Adderall. we are no different than the neon
0: life. and die Little American Aquarium, bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg Firearms. I'm Cable Smith. We're still talking noodling today with Justin White and Drew Moore, who are here in studio. Uh, They recently etched their names into the annals of hand-fishing lore, and uh, we're going to pick it back up with them momentarily. This segment is brought to you by SCI, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. They put their money where their mouth is protecting our rights as sportsmen and women, both domestically and internationally. They are fighting day in and day out right there at Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. To join our ranks, just head over to safariclub.org. All right. Well, Justin, Drew, thanks for sticking around. Absolutely. So before uh, this past week, what was the largest catfish uh, both of you had ever caught?
3: Uh, Man, before this one, I think Probably one of my biggest was even together. We caught uh, one in the mid-80s, I believe. It was like 84, uh, 85. Yeah,
2: somewhere in
0: mid-80s. Uh-huh. And that was a flathead? That was. What's the biggest blue cat you've caught?
3: Um, we've pulled some in the 60s. Some yeah,
2: probably 60s. probably higher 60s, close to 70. I don't know if we've ever broke the 70 mark. Or at least, you know, not that we've had scales and or certified or anything like that, but... We've caught some definitely in the high 60s, maybe 70, but.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I've seen pictures on your social media stuff of some monster blue cats. Yes, sir. And realistically, blue cats get bigger than flatheads. They do. Yeah. Yep. But I haven't heard of anybody catching a 100-pound blue cat.
2: No, and I would honestly hate to run into one. I mean, I'd love to catch one, but, man, that would be a battle with a 100-pound blue cat. I couldn't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Just I saw a
0: guy in Tennessee just caught one with a rod and reel last mm-hmm. yeah, week that was 122 pounds. Yeah. Blue cat. Yep. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, you don't really hear about people catching 100-pound flatheads. Exactly. It's pretty rare. Yeah. And the one that you guys just caught was like 98.7. Yeah. K-Love.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we was just a little over pound shy of that 100-pound mark. And we'd always joked about before, you know, noodling that. You know, if we caught a triple-digit fish over 100 pounds, we just you know retire from the sport and find something else to do. But yeah. we missed it by a little bit, so <laughs> that's our goal now is to try to break that.
0: Um, is there anything to the bigger, the water body, the bigger potential for the fish to to grow, or could you find uh you know close to 100 pound flathead in say the smaller <laughs> little lake that that we went noodling in?
2: Um. I mean, I've kind of always heard that the fish kind of grow to their surroundings, so mm-hmm. I, there probably is some truth to that. But I think, honestly, just the more pressure a lake has and the more, you know, more pressure there is, there's more people keeping the bigger fish that they catch. And I'm going to say, yes, they probably do grow bigger in the bigger lakes, but
3: mm-hmm. I don't. Yeah, but you, I still don't think you can overlook the small lakes either. Yes. Like, we do, you know, we fish, I'm curious the like y'all fish, yes. actually. Yes, I mean, that, that lake is Load with flatheads yeah and he and pulled several 60s and 70 pound flatheads out of it. and it's yeah i don't even know that you could say it's a quarter of the size of you know yeah. the lake for fish to walk and he's 300 something thousand acres you know that yeah. hill, that lake there ain't
2: you know, it's small yeah, yeah. Acres, maybe. yeah. yeah. Maybe it an may, an may not even be a thousand acres but yeah and granted i've never caught one i think the biggest we've caught out of that particular lake was right at 70 71 but there's like I said, it's just a fantastic little fishing lake. Can mm-hmm. be at certain times, so
0: it's a good place to take a, a newbie.
2: Yes, yes. It's like like <laughs> you no know, deep holes yeah, exactly. When when we went, all the holes are shallow and it don't get a whole lot of fishing pressure. It's just very overlooked, so mm-hmm. it tends to it tends to be a fun little lake to fish.
0: Well, Tawakoni's not overlooked, and I mean the cat's out of the bag. Yeah, I think Field and Stream already yeah. wrote an article about yeah y'all's catch, and they you know they named the lake. Um, <laughs> but t- it's not a secret. Tawakonee's no, always had big yeah. I catfish. Think,
2: I think Tawakonee's the catfish capital of the United States or mm. the world. I don't know what the title is. But, yeah, it's it's always been known for its catfish. But I'm sure there will be some extra people out there fishing this weekend, yeah. maybe because of this story. So Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, so what day did you guys catch it?
2: It was Friday, Friday uh, June 23rd. Uh-huh.
0: And what was the wh- – would you say that weather or time of day affects noodling like it does? I mean, obviously, if you're fishing with the rod and reel, it, yeah, that stuff yeah, affects it does big affect
3: time. It. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Personally. Yeah, I, I don't. don't think, I think night or day. I think it's the luck of the draw. Really, I, I think, think that it's fish is either home or she's not. Yeah, and you know,
2: I think it's the, just that certain time of year. It's just like the rut, I guess. Like for deer, mm. I mean, it's it gets to that perfect little prime time window that they're trying to breed or spawn, whatever. You know, it's. I think when that time's right, it's right pretty much. Whether it's day, night, morning, that mm-hmm. kind of deal.
0: Okay. And was this hole uh, one of your regular spots?
2: No, it was not. Huh? We found this hole about two weeks prior, actually, and we went down and found it. And massive hole, uh, about fourteen foot deep, on a bridge. Um. Not going to name necessarily the particular yeah. bridge, but uh, <laughs> then you will see a bunch of boats. Yeah, there. <laughs> I mean, it was just like the overpour, you know, coming down the slope of the bridge, and there's, you know, the bridges cracked up. So we went down and found it, and we swam up in there, and there was two fish in it, about 35 ish pounds, but the hole's massive.
0: Like you could get in the hole? Yes. Yeah, we
2: swam yes.
3: in, sh- like bump shoulders yes. and swim in. So, I so I the door,
2: you know, like the entrance of this hole is probably about, I'm going to say five foot wide, but it's only about a foot and a half tall. So it's kind of like a long rectangle shape. Yeah. So it's it's too big for one person to go in because that fish could blow around you. So we go in side by side, you know, just head first in there. Like I said, you got to go probably five to six foot before it gets to the actual fish bed. And in like, the
0: hole, five or six feet. Yes. In the pitch under by. the
2: under the concrete. Yeah, pop- going <laughs> head first. I yeah, and
3: that. it's. It, we hate it. We try not to go ahead first. It's but one of them situations. y'all need your heads examined. Yes.
2: but like I said, we we found the hole and there was two smaller fish that we caught out of it, but we're like, man this hole is massive. We've got to come back and check this and sure mm-hmm. enough. so when we first got out there Friday, we knew there was a storm passing by, but it was supposed to kind of miss us. but we're like, man, you know, you know with him being in school and all that, we just ha- ain't had much time to go fishing. so we're like, mm-hmm. man, we gotta you know we'll wait it out if we got to. So we launched a boat. And as soon as we get out there, I mean, it looks like Hurricane Ike's coming. And so we get under the bridge, and we ride that storm out for an hour and a half. And, yeah, it was it was a rough storm. And then that's when we pulled over there and checked that hole while we was right there.
0: So do you take the air down with you for that one? We did, absolutely. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah,
3: it, absolutely. Just, it just hooks to a 12-volt battery. In the, yeah, it, in the it
2: stays got... in the boat. And we've got a uh, 50-foot of hose that comes down to each one of us and okay, swim down in there. I
0: mean that makes me feel a little better, but yeah. still yeah. feel horrible about the whole thing.
3: Yeah, it's, it's, that, that hole <laughs> there, there is probably not something mm-hmm. you'd ever want to do without, you know. Cause, yeah, I don't because, like I say, it we like we told Field and Stream or and everybody when we go in there and all that stuff's going on and you got two people trying to wrestle a hundred, you know, almost hundred pound fish. You can say hundred pound fish, or I'm going to say it. Yeah, <laughs> and you kind of get you know backwards. You don't know which way's which. That, you don't know-
0: that trout right there is 29 inches and. In- Three quarters, but yeah. if anyone asks, I just say thirty inches. Yeah, yeah exactly.
3: <laughs> Close enough. Yeah. We go in this thing side by side, and uh, it—I mean, it's a fight. So basically, you know, long story short, you get this fish settled down, then you got to worry about how do I get out of here? Which way do I come in? Which way did I go out? Which way is which? You know. So yeah. That's yeah. a good thing about them air hoses coming in. Mean, not only so you can breathe, it's so you have a way to backtrack. Yeah, you grab a hose <laughs> and you know which way is out. Yeah.
0: yeah. So who? So that day you wait, wait the storm out and then you go down and you, I mean, you're down there together. Who actually puts their hand in the fish's mouth?
2: Well, so the deal is, is we get in there and we meet her right at, you know, her bowl of the bed and all that. And she just goes nuts. She's biting me. She's biting him. She, you know, but that size of fish, you know, typically a 40, 50 pound fish, you know, they come up and bite you. We can snatch onto them and, you know, wrap them up, get them out. Well, this fish is biting me, shaking me off like a rag doll, biting him, shaking him loose. And, you know, that goes on for probably a minute straight. I mean, just all hell breaking loose. She grabbed one of you and just, you know, grab you by the arm and just start death rolling, break you loose. Well, I guess she finally had enough, and she tried to blow out and hit us kind of right between us. And that's when we both just turned and just kind of like put her in a headlock, like wrapped her up. <laughs> and, you know, like I said, it's pitch black, so it's just instinct that fish is trying to blow out. you got to, you know, pin her up in between us, stop her. And we both just wrapped her up, you know, just like like I said, in a chokehold. We're but basically we, doing a bear, like a bear yes. hug. Uh-huh. With the and we, with then, tennis. you know, we k- kind of got her calmed down for a second. And we both reach up there, put a, you know, each one of us got her like in a headlock in one arm, and then grab her by the mouth and just ease her on out. You know, we we squeeze our way back out, and then we got you know weight belts and everything on to keep us down instead of floating back up to the top. Um, and so we just got to get out, and we're just kind of stuck to the bottom. But we just got to walk her back up the concrete to the top
3: wow mm-hmm. <laughs> i think that was probably that was, that was a big chore there is, is yeah. making it 14 foot up with uh-huh. this fish in our hand which we knew it was big you know immediately yeah. knew it was a big fish
2: and that concrete you know i'm sure you know like boat ramps and stuff they get that moss and stuff growing on right on the edge of the water oh. and it's slick as could be so it's and we didn't have no stringer with us or nothing so we're just you know praying we can hold on to this fish coming up of it, so
0: so at some point does somebody get their hand through the, like the
2: well yeah we both just kind of had it we, you know, he had one side of the mouth and the gill and all that, and I had, the, you know, the same thing on the other side, and we just both wrapped up on it. So Dude. we knew it was a, a giant fish, so we weren't taking no chances. You know, I yeah, we was doing all we could do to hang on to her.
0: <laughs> I can't imagine. being So, you know, I was just thinking in my head, like the place that we went noodling, like something mm-hmm. like that. You found that, you know, I, yeah, that would still be a hell of a fight. Yeah, even in water, you could stand up. Yes. In. Yes. But to be in that situation, yeah, fourteen foot deep, way down under concrete, can't see anything. Yeah, Uh, yeah. And
3: you're talking about visibility. It just you know when you go up under that concrete, it's none. You put your you know you touch your nose to your palm of your hand, you can't see your fingers. Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh yeah. It's jet
2: black under there.
0: Uh, You also have to think about uh, rebar Mm -hmm. as something that could you know be ruin your day pretty quick.
2: Absolutely. Well, and honestly, on that particular deal. I don't know if they even used rebar on that bridge, like the overport, And I think that's why it's starting to break up. So mm. there's always that factor, you know, this could break while we're under there. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, the whole thing is just sketchy altogether. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would rather, honestly, I'd rather see rebar in there. Cause I know that it's, you know, got some reinforcement keeping it from just collapsing and breaking loose, but mm. I'm not sure if there was or not. So,
0: so how do you get, your boat is tied up to one of the pillar like mm-hmm. the, the it, pilings. It, yes, sir. How do you get the fish over there? Or one do you just go get some over and get the boat and then yeah, bring it back? Pretty
2: much. And we got it up on the concrete and we you know, one of us just stays wrapped up on it. The other one goes goes and gets the boat and we got it stringered, threw it up in the boat, and then that's when we just freaked out. I mean, we knew it was big, but we finally we had two different scales with us. We picked it up on one, it said one hundred and three. It was like, Man, you know, let's check this other scale. And the other scale said 108 and was like, oh, my goodness. You know, yeah. we got to find somewhere with certified scales. Yeah. And uh, I actually called the game warden at first because I don't know who else to call it. It's about 8 o'clock, 8.30 in the evening at this point, and all the marinas are closed. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking maybe the game warden's got some way of certifying it or something. And uh, he ended up just sending me a screenshot list of all the marinas that have certified scales, and they're all closed, of course. So I'm like, man – I'm just going to be a, you know a Hail Mary shop. I'm going to call Duck Cove Marina because they've got an RV park as well. Uh-huh. And so I was like, maybe I can get somebody on the RV park side of things to answer and can talk them into coming down there and open up the, you know, the Marina or whatever. And sure enough, this guy Jimmy answered, and he was. He said, "Bring her on." He said, "I'll be down there in five minutes with the scale." Well, it's good
0: for business for Jimmy. Oh, the absolutely. More people coming to fish. Like, <laughs> absolutely. He's like, "Hey,
2: absolutely." I'll be and, your uncle Barry. Uh, yeah, I don't know if he ran through the park yelling that there was a record coming or what, but when we got there, there's 40 people standing around a circle waiting on us, and I was like, "Man, I hope we don't disappoint nobody <laughs> pulling up here." And, it, and
3: I, it took us a while to get over there too. They were, I bet they were ready, you know, pretty yeah. quick too, because we pulled up and yeah, everybody's standing there like, you know, y'all y'all coming today or what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Because it, I mean, it took us probably, it, yeah, it, it's probably like if you just
2: drove straight there, it's probably like a 15 minute boat ride, mm-hmm. give or take. But we were so worried about this, you know, we'd have rather let the the fish live than have it accidentally die and, you know, weigh it in. We yeah. just care that much about them. So we'd drive for three or four minutes, stop, put the fish back in the water on the stringer for, you know, three or four minutes, load it back up, drive a little farther, stop, put it back in the water. We were just so, you know, careful trying to keep the fish alive yeah. and. So it took us a little ways to get
0: there. but Well, unlike a bass or something, catfish can live out of the water a little yeah, bit Yeah, they can live.
2: Yeah. But it I don't know. You don't want to stress them out yeah, that, too much. Because they absolutely can. They can stress out and die on, on you quick. But mm-hmm. I don't know, just this late in the year, how hot the water is and how much of a fight you put up. And, you know, we just didn't want to test anything like that. But yeah, we so got there and he was ready for us, I'll tell you that. And the fish is alive. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh.
0: And so the certified scale said ninety eight point seven. Okay, so that's the official weight. That is the official weight. And did you know that? Did you know what the lake record was? Well, no. You talk about a lake that has produced monster catfish there's, for decades. There's been
2: there's been bigger come out of it. Mm-hmm. I can't. There hasn't been noodled necessarily yeah. that have been certified at least. But um, I knew that the pending like national record for noodling at the time was 85 point something uh-huh. from Nate Williams caught it. Um, so that's why, you know, cause I, I was told, I'm not for sure yet, but I was told that the state of Texas doesn't recognize hand fishing records. So that's why it may not even be a state record cause they don't have, you know, kind uh-huh. of a category for it, but it looks like it will be the national record. The pretty much the biggest one that's ever been noodled and weighed on certified scales. Uh-huh. Wow. So,
0: well, and at the very least, you know, when Texas or if they ever do start keeping those, it's mm-hmm. certified. So, yeah. you know, it'll yeah. it'll be the state record.
2: Yeah. And I also called, uh, I think it's IGFA, mm-hmm. the, like the world records or whatever. Yeah. I called them and um, was kind of asking them about it. And they're like, well, you know, we can enter it, but it's going to be in like the all tackle category, which somebody's got us beat with 123 pound flathead in 1998. Yeah. And, um, they told me pretty much to call them back this next Wednesday, you know, whoever's coming back in the office and they're considering maybe opening up a, you know, a specific class for hand fishing. Mm. So we're going to, we're going to try to do that hopefully.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, and then when you guys released the fish, did you take it back to the same area or just put it in the water and say, we are just see a girl good luck
3: yeah we didn't want to keep her out of the water any any longer than we already yeah. had you know we had our own scales and then and i'd say we put her on the scales first time and then they didn't have a good knot tied so you know it was <laughs> back and forth to the water a couple times before we finally got a true weight we wanted yeah. a true weight you know yeah so we didn't want to keep her out of the water any longer we had to so we just kind of shot just away from the cove because there was a lot of people fishing with poles and stuff and uh-huh. all that you know and I'd have felt real bad if we let that fish go, and she goes over and ate that rattle trap that guy was throwing. And, yeah. Hey, look what I caught. I yeah. Picked yeah, yeah. got the sides snagged. I got a bubble sure. yeah. you uh-huh. know. So we just shot across the lake over there where nobody was and let her go.
2: Yeah, we kind of got to like the mid-lake just on a big point, kind of deeper water, and we let her go there.
1: Awesome.
0: And awesome.
2: We got we got the the, the release on video because there's plenty of people that, saying Yeah, it. that's
3: the biggest thing, man. Is there's been a lot of positive comments, but there are so many people that I guess just assume we – killed it, Greece, killed guess, it. You know. even though
2: on our post you, it says, and if you would have killed it hey it's not the
0: end
3: of the yeah, world it's you know? completely I mean, legal to do we're all as conservationists
2: as, yes right. exactly it's not like that
0: fish wasn't going to get eaten yeah uh, it's like you know some of the bill fishing tournaments you yeah. know, the, the fish they die yeah yeah uh, exactly. but they don't go to waste She swam off very freely that's rewarding
2: yeah it is yeah. It was. And you know because we're always thinking you know maybe she'll come back this next year or two years from now maybe she'll gain a little bit more weight maybe she broke the 100 pound mark yeah. we'll never know but she may, you know, just like deer, they don't get that big by being dumb, so she mm-hmm. may never she may never show back up in that particular hole again. So Yeah. Educated her. We'll yeah.
0: I wonder and I you it would have to be like a, a fish fisheries biologist that would if there is any information on that, um, but how old a fish like that would be.
3: Well, another guy actually called us and told yeah. us, um, he was a he writes from some newspaper article around Nacogdoches area. Uh-huh. He said he talked to a wildlife biologist, and he said roughly late 20s, I think. Late 20s? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Late
0: 20s. He
2: said his guesstimation was easily in the 20s. Wow. Mm hmm
0: Wow. So
2: that fish...
3: I I was thinking older, to be honest with you. Yeah, I was
2: kind of thinking older, but if it's late 20s, heck, that fish is older than us. I'm 24. He's 23, so that fish could be older than us, which is pretty cool to think about. Yeah. But...
0: That is crazy. Oh, and once the fish has reached that size, I probably doesn't have any natural predators other than us
2: no. besides humans yeah. yeah yeah that's pretty much it i'd assume yeah
0: that's incredible incredible yeah well i'm sure i mean you guys are still on cloud nine. Oh yeah yeah
3: yeah it's 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 been a it's
2: been overwhelming honestly yeah. yeah like i said we've had a lot of positive feedback but there's a lot of negative people well out screw there those well. people yeah i you mean what we don't let it get to us, but oh yeah, don't it's just noise. Yeah, exactly. And, and
0: jealousy, probably. Yeah, I think that plays a little. If it's anybody in it. that's a noodler and they're yeah, like and saying negative things, there's a lot
2: of them that are noodlers that you know, and just people. I we've had people say you know that fish was stuffed with weights, like you know like the walleye oh, yeah. deal. Yeah, you know that fish was stuffed with lead weights and fish chunks, and I'm like, dude, we called the game warden to come inspect it just for people like you, yeah. you know, because. We know there's going to be
3: something said. So. Yeah, that's 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 bad, too. But a- another bad part about it is there's a lot of people that know out there, and supposedly a lot of people have caught 100-pound fish that, you know, nobody's seen any pictures of scales or, you know, they just it's just he said, she said at that point. So you get a lot of people comment on there saying, oh, well, you know, so-and-so caught 106, so that's not true. So-and-so caught, you know, yeah. 99, that's not true. you y'all ain't the record, but we hit well, certified scales they yeah. did not so yeah, sorry I, about your luck.
2: We're not knocking nobody. There could have very easily been bigger fish caught, but mm-hmm. as of now, we've got the biggest one that's ever been certified. So yeah, yeah. We'll gladly take that title. And, uh,
0: and, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not like a record chaser. Yeah. But if you put a 175-inch deer and yeah. 140-inch deer in the same field, exactly,
2: I'm not shooting the 140. No. Exactly. <laughs> and nobody exactly. is.
0: We and can't I, eat the horns. Okay, but you that just said that, sir. Yeah you're still going to shoot the 175 yes, exactly yeah, because it's human nature you're know? yes. be like oh let me shoot the smaller one yep,
2: exactly. yeah exactly
0: so yeah well awesome stuff man um and you know we've we've hung out a couple times mm-hmm. doing this it's clearly your passion it is so when you hear about something like this happening to somebody that you know your buddies with and, yes uh it's pretty cool yes so and nice to meet you as well drew yes sir yeah glad so. you have us yeah.
2: Yes, sir, and I hope you can make time for us this next season and come out and give it a try. Yeah. Again. Yeah. I mean I really want to get you on some blue cats to let you kind of experience <laughs> the, that world.
0: Welcome to the Thunderdome. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah.
2: Because if you think them flatheads are vicious, you got another thing coming.
0: <laughs> well, I look forward to that. Uh what is y'all's social media if you wanna plug that?
3: Uh I don't all I got is an uh, Instagram and I'm gonna be honest, I don't even know my username. I don't yeah, I'm not big on social media I got Facebook Yeah you know, my I mean First and last name Drew Moore That's all I got uh, Facebook, Yeah
2: My but. Facebook's Justin White Instagram I think is Justin White 3 I looked on there the other day And you haven't posted anything On Instagram in forever I haven't To me it's just You know I don't know I just get so caught up With work and family And all that It's just
0: Yeah Smart Smart on you Yeah Good I'm on not, you for, I'm
2: not necessarily mad about it
0: Yeah
2: <laughs> wouldn't be either Well congrats guys Thank, Thank thanks you Thanks so
0: much for dropping by It's Thank been a, a treat to have you in Thank you for having us Yeah so there they go, Justin White and Drew Moore. I tell you what, some of that stuff they get themselves into sounds pretty sketchy. <laughs> Could you do it? I don't know. Uh, but kudos to them on one hell of a catch. Uh, that segment of the show brought to you by the Armorsite 640 Contractor, the latest in Armorsite's lineup of thermal optics. To see their entire lineup of thermal optics, and Night Vision Optics. Just head over to Armasight.com. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today. Got to go. Got to get out of here. Uh, Thanks to Justin and Drew, as well as Kip Adams of the National Deer Association. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors.